0: You're listening to Drek FM.
1: There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it?
2: (laughs) I was there more times than I can remember.
0: Will you follow me?
1: One last time.
0: Welcome, everyone, to Trek FM's local watering hole, The Prancing Pony. I'm glad you're here. Wait, wait, uh, Norm, wait,
1: where are we? The 602 Club, Matthew. Oh, yeah,
0: oh, yeah, not The Prancing Pony or The Green Dragon. No, uh, you might think that we're in one of those places, but no. Uh, We are actually in The 602 Club, and uh, I've got some great friends who have dropped by this week, so... We've all ordered our drinks, make sure you get yours. I'm your host, of course, Matthew Rushing, and with me today, again, uh, he's been gone for a while. Um, he he uh, he didn't come down with dragon sickness like Alice did, luckily, but uh, he was held up um, at a place, uh, you know, by some evil guys, and uh, otherwise knows work. Norm, <laughs> it's good to have you back.
1: It's good to be back. The orcs had me. The orcs had me chained up. But I made it out. I found a little bitty trinket. It was round, kind of gold-ish. I put it on my finger nothing happened. So, someone promised me that it would bring me to the Twilight World, but that was a big lie. So, anyway, I ordered my Frog Morton beer, my South Farting Ale from Ruby. <laughs> uh, she said we don't serve that, so I just have a glass of water. Okay.
0: Well, you know, uh, it's it's okay.
1: Ruby doesn't like my sass. And...
0: uh I'm really excited uh, because Alice, you've recovered from dragon sickness. It's good to have you back,
3: yeah, o- almost actually. It, it, that dragon okay. system dragon sickness is hard to kick, man
0: it really is i mean just ask thorin you you pretty much did did you fall down any like gold floors and um... i wish
3: man i really wish (laughs) (laughs) but no i was just thinking that that floor
0: you just want to like mine that floor and turn it into bricks of gold not that they need gold i mean but seriously megan it's great to have you back as well great to Uh, be back yeah it's so much fun in fact I was listening to Educating Geeks today as y'all talked about The Hobbit, and it just got me so excited to to be talking about the Battle of the Five Armies with you guys. And so uh, here we are again, and as the ads all say, this is one last time. Uh, we will not be going to Middle Earth with Peter Jackson ever again, most likely, because I don't think that the Tolkien estate is going to be selling him any more rights. Mm. Uh, they they really don't love the films, at least Christopher Tolkien doesn't, and uh, he's, he's the uh, main person behind the Tolkien estate, and so um, luckily... i I think um tolkien had sold those rights uh for the hobbit and lord of the rings before he had died and so that's what gave us this ability to have these films and this movie has already come out and everybody's seen it um and so first, just kind of tell me how you saw it, because there's a lot of different ways that you can see this movie. You can see it in 2D. You can see it in 3D. You can see it in 3D um, high frame rate. You can see it in a large screen. Uh, Dolby Atmos. I mean, it's it's insane. So, Norm, how did you end up seeing the film? Well, I,
1: I ended up seeing it um, just regular 2D um, 48 frames, because I think that's the only way that it's shown now. Um, but here's a small story it has nothing to do with the technicality of the film so when I went to go see it on Sunday I went with one of my best friends and my godson who's 11 who's named Sam after Samwise because um, my friend and I we met at um, playing the Lord of the Rings card game and watched the movie together and did all that stuff back in 2001 I mean he was my godson's 11 he wasn't even born you know when the fellowship came out and now I'm sitting next to him watching the you know the Battle of the Five Armies and that was amazing. And his younger brother and sister to the right of me. He was to the left of me. And the wonder that came up in these children's eyes was just extraordinary. I mean, I, I like the film a lot. And, and I like what it does. And I, and I enjoy the universe. But, wow, if you want to watch a movie and just see it for all it's worth, find some kids and take them with you because it's pretty neat. But I had a lot of fun with it. I'm not going to dive too far into it right now.
0: Yeah, that's really cool, though. I mean, I I think that is uh, a fantastic way to get to see just about any movie is is kind of being able to watch it through a kid's Mm -hmm. eyes. Alice, Megan, how did y'all end up seeing the film?
3: Well, I took my son, who is nine, uh, Ray, to see it uh, IMAX. So it was 3D, fast frame rate, huge screen.
2: And then I, um, I saw it, nothing fancy, just your standard 2D, 48 frames, um, in a theater just down the street, just last night with a friend of mine who has seen none of the other Hobbit movies, and I don't even think he's seen any of the Lord of the Rings movies, so it was, kinda, it was kind of an interesting experience to be there with somebody who was going in totally blind.
0: I can't even imagine. Like, what did he think? Uh, what was his opinion?
2: Um, I think he enjoyed it overall. I, I know there was some stuff that kind of went over his head, but um, I think it was during uh, the smog attack. He is like, this, he leans over and says, this might be a pretty good movie after all. <laughs> so I think he definitely enjoyed it. He he was very excited to see Kate from Lost appear, so.
0: Everybody's excited to see Kate from Lost appear <laughs> yeah. as much as possible. Uh, so, even if you don't like the character, just having Evangeline Lilly on screen is always a plus for me. So, um, well, I ended up seeing it um, IMAX 3D, and then we went and saw it at a theater here down south, and they showed it in IMA- or in 3D large format, 48 frames per second with the Dolby Atmos, and it's, it's pretty incredible. So I've seen it twice and really, really enjoyed it both times. And so for you guys, everybody saw it, 48 frames per second, real quick. What do you guys think of that uh, kind of milieu for film? And, And do you think it's actually something that they still need to work on at this point? What about you, Norm?
1: You know, I really enjoyed the graininess of the original trilogy because I think that it grounds the texture of the world a little bit more. With the mountain, I mean, 48 frames per second, I mean, it shows you a lot of detail, but what I think it loses a little bit of is atmospheric perspective, where, I mean, I want to see the misty mountains off in the distance, or I want to see, um, when they're doing the high crane shots, I want to see uh, a little bit loss of focus from foreground to background, because when you're looking at those high scenes when you're in Erebor, from the high crane scenes, looking down at Dale and watching all the armies kind of like emerge on each other, you want to see some... Separation of foreground to background, and everything became a little bit too homogenized when it came to textures. So that's something I miss a little bit when it comes to this type of technology because it's so high resolution and you can track almost every single frame rate. Um, it, it's it's clear, but sometimes it doesn't have to be so clear. You want to be able to have those moments of smudginess.
0: What do you guys think, Alice and, and Megan?
3: So for me... Um only anecdotally, I, I had a headache two hours afterwards, a rather bad one, actually, uh, but I have no idea whether or not it was related <laughs> to the uh, nature <laughs> of the way that the film was shown, um, but for, for me, the difficult thing was actually uh, the 3D aspect of it, because on that really huge screen, or I don't know, I don't go to see very many 3D films, but if I tilted my head in the least bit, um, I would see the scope, you know, I would see the red and blue, um, so I had to be very conscious of keeping my head dead straight um, to stay in in the moment. Um, although I, I think I can hear what you're you're saying in terms of the foreground to to background, but I have to say, for me personally, it didn't it didn't bother me. That that wasn't what bothered me about the film.
2: <laughs> I'm kind of with you, Norm. Um, I enjoy the Christmas of it, but I do think. Um I think part of the reason why they did that, and this is something that Matt and I had talked about in previous um, discussions about the Hobbit movies, is how this is a brighter, crisper, um, kind of friendlier-looking Middle Earth, and I I think the 48 frames really kind of lends itself to that. Um, But there are some times when I think, you know, maybe we don't need it to be as crisp as it looked. Um, But I still thought it looked great. Um, I think it helped all of the CG that they did look a little bit better. So... um, I think it's a it's an interesting move. I think it's a good move.
0: Yeah, I, I, you know, I'm with you guys because I can I can see the difference. There is a difference. Um, it, the clarity and the way it looks. Um, I think that the 48 here looks better than it did when it originally started with an unexpected journey. They've definitely graded the picture uh, in in a much um, a more successful way. And it's, it's helped create more of that movie feel that we really expect when we go to the films. I do think that the um, the main difference is, like you said, Megan, it does kind of add to the, the brightness of this. In fact, watching The Lord of the Rings with my wife right now, we're watching through the, the, tr- the original trilogy now. And it is very interesting because that movie is much more muted. Like, I always thought of that as being very bright. And, and you know, they, they did a lot of digital grading in those films. But it's nothing compared to the Hobbit films. And the Hobbit films are immensely brighter. And I think that's a really smart move because the world is supposed to be a lot different. This is really before the darkness of Sauron has taken over in ways that even the peoples of Middle-earth aren't quite understanding yet. So having that distinction, I think, really works. Um, And I think that 48 frames per second, who knows whether it will stay around for a while. You know, I don't think that we'll keep making movies the same way. Obviously, Peter Jackson's right. Movies move forward. And obviously, they've changed a lot in the last 100 years. And so... Who knows how long it'll take for this to catch on. And uh, I, I just like that he was willing to experiment. For him, actually, that I read, his his preferred method of viewing is 2D, 48 frames per second. And so uh, he doesn't really like the 3D. In fact, a lot of directors don't love 3D. It's the studios that force them to do 3D because they can charge you know, extra prices uh, for tickets. So... Um, And just on uh, that note, too, it was Peter Jackson who approached the um, studio and said, I need another movie. Uh, It wasn't the studio's choice. So it was a creative decision on his part to say, we need to do another film. And and so I thought that was an interesting thing to find out that it was really Peter's idea and not the studio. And they said, "Well, okay," because at this point you pretty much say yes to Peter Jackson. So, uh, especially with the bukkus of money that he's pulling in. So, anyway, besides that, let's jump into the actual movie, and we pick up where we left off, and Smog is about to attack. Lake Town and we get that big huge action scene of Smaug just leveling this city. So what did you guys think? Uh did it live up to kind of your expectations of what you figured this would look like when we were left all sitting at the edge of our chairs and Ed Sheehan decided to come on and, and sing us a song and we're like, But I just want to see some death and destruction. What'd
1: you guys think? Uh, that was a great cliffhanger. I mean, it's—I can't believe it's been a year. You know, I mean, it's just like the the compression of time over 2014 was just crazy, and that that cliffhanger was just fantastic. Um, it 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 did exactly what you wanted it to do. It it left you wanting more, and I, I think that it actually was—it was a cool. I mean, when I walk into these movies, I leave the books behind. I just do. That's that's the way I am with any kind of book to translation, movie to translation, because. I need to judge it on the merits of what I'm seeing, not not of what I know. Um, so when I saw that happen, it's like, okay, I know that this giant black harpoon isn't the black arrow that is in the book. We, I mean, we all know that as book readers. But the way that they handled it, I thought was really interesting because he tried the traditional arrow approach, which I thought was really cool. And then all of a sudden... Um, his son, you know, his heir, as he was the the heir to, you know, the, uh, the nobility of the town. It was kind of like this nice little passage of of uh, how to beat Smaug with all the information that has come out throughout the course of the years. That one plate is gone. You have to be able to get it with the arrow. But there isn't an arrow that can penetrate him. So here it is, this giant harpoon. I mean, the the effects were great. Benedict Cumberbatch's voice was pretty miraculous, as it usually is. Uh, it was fun. I, I thought it was it was neat. It was a really good way to get people right into the movie. It was a nice cold opening before the credits, and it kind of lets you settle in because everyone's kind of fidgeting around. It's like, come on, come on, come on, start the movie, and then boom, fire, destruction, and credits. And that's very that's very much expected of a Peter Jackson movie. You know, it's he kind of hooks you pretty quickly.
2: Yeah, I agree. I thought it was a great way to open the movie. Um, like I said, it really drew in my friend who had never seen any of the other Lord of the Rings. So um, I thought it was a great, fun, action-packed way to bring us back into Middle-Earth for the last time. All the fire and destruction was amazing. Of all the battle scenes in the the movie, that one is actually my favorite. I think that might be my favorite too, actually.
3: Yep, It was definitely really exciting. I could have... Done without the screaming little girls. But you know, whatever. Yeah.
0: It's it's really well done, and I mean it's a hard scene to do because you're again, you're CGIing water and fire and all of these things together, and that's the get the some of the hardest things that you can do with CG, and I feel like they make it really work. And again, the dragon just looks I mean, Smaug looks fantastic. And it looks like he's on screen. Uh, And I really appreciate that. Um, What did you guys think? So the master dies. And uh, he dies pretty unceremoniously. (laughs) What did you guys think about that? Because that is a change from the book, of course. And um, actually a pretty big change.
2: I didn't mind it, actually. When they did it, I was like, you know what? That's fine. We don't need another character in this movie, this person movie is already just packed with characters and i don't i don't think a movie audience necessarily needs even as many characters as we had in the hobbit movies so to me it was totally fine focusing more on bard i think worked a lot better um and it let us just kind of go with the rest of the story i thought it worked well
3: but they leave the other guy so if we're talking about not too many characters then you know why not take them both out (laughs)
2: Well, you need I would have been some okay comic that. relief, Alice. <laughs> yeah, <Well.
1: laughs> I think Alfred kind of like led. He's the kind of hook that leads the audience around where where there needs to be just this little bitty thread of a narrative so you can follow Bard from a from an audience's point of view. Like you want to hate him. You know, you want to not Bard, You want to hate Alfred. I mean, you want to like just get at this guy. And it always keeps you hooked when you're watching him because like, how's this guy going to end? What's the, what, you know, he's, he, he kind of ends as unceremoniously as the master does. He just kind of goes off into nothingness where he's always kind of like, he's just been grasping at the greatness of all the other men around him. You know, you can, if you want to call the master great, but it, that's kind of like, it's uh, if it wasn't for that particular exposition, then it would just be a bunch of people trying to wring the water out of their clothes and build a new city. I mean, there really wasn't a lot going on there. So, it, it adds, yeah, filler. But we are in a third movie, so we have to get that out of the way. There is going to be filler. And it just keeps that kind of like moving along with a little bit of levity because towards the end, you know, you have to kind of build up a little bit of levity before you really just start unleashing all of that chaos at the end of the movie, which is almost all the movies, so.
0: Having Alfred around was was fine with me. I for I personally just wish that when they made the joke about his skirt and then you never see him again that uh the last time you would seen him he had had an orc arrow sticking out of his head or something like that as opposed to a bra full of gold yeah exactly just wanted him to die or you know just get taken out in the most comical way possible you know to to really bring that home that you know this kind of greedy selfish attitude that the whole movie is really laced with the theme of of greed and how it doesn't really pay off for anyone um i really wanted to see that kind of play out in that character but it you know that that's a minor quibble because he doesn't have a lot to do in the in the film and so
2: i definitely agree with you on that
0: yeah, so I really appreciated the um, the actual destruction of Lake Town and the the work that they put into that. I think it worked really well. It looks really good, and it's a very effective opening. And this is, I, it, I could be wrong, but I think this is the only Lord of the Rings film, Hobbit film, where there isn't some kind of prologue. Where they're telling you a backstory, like you know, Desolation of Smaug opens up with the prologue of Thorin and Gandalf at Bree, and The Hobbit opens up with the prologue. Return and of the King opens up with all the, prologue. the Lord of the, yeah, Lord of the Rings all have prologues to them. Um, so very interesting that this movie is like, bam, where we're not giving you anything else. It's just full on, you know, pedal to the metal from. What the What would beginning. you consider the so, flashback?
1: At The Xerox Eagle in Two Towers, a prologue because it goes right into Gandalf versus the Balrog.
0: Yep, yeah, it is. It is kind of a flashback. I would say that's kind
2: of prologue ish, yeah,
0: yeah, Yeah. at least flashback ish. I mean, this one, there's none of that. It just we're right on to you know, Smaug, you know, being in mid flight and attacking. Uh, lake town at this point so it it was just an interesting thing to see this movie is obviously the shortest of all the lord of the rings films and the hobbit films so they really cut it down and and just get to what they're trying to do in the film which you know for a lot of people that's that's what they want to see as a fan i can i be longer i don't care so well it very well might be um yeah. yeah, well, we'll get the longer version, the one that I really want to see in the first place, <laughs> when it comes well, out finally probably sometime next year like they usually do, the extended well, can edition. Can I ask a the question so.
1: then about that? I know it's not noted, but do you think people are holding off watching these movies because they know eventually that an extended edition will come out and they'll see the movie that they want to see?
2: No. 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 I think they're watching it now because they want to see it now. Yeah.
3: Definitely general. Not not everyone in the world is quite so geeky, but still love movies and still love action adventure, so... I think there's a very large portion of the population that wants to see it because it's the hot new movie that everyone's going to, yeah. and they want to be able to water cooler talk about it or Facebook, yeah. Twitter talk about it, whatever people do these days.
2: Why watch it once you new know, and you can watch it twice? Well, I don't think
1: they're going to have there as many repeat performances because they know they're going to get something later on in the end that might be a little bit better for them. You know?
0: I don't know. I've already seen it twice, Norman. So <laughs> really, I
1: only seen it once, and, I, I, and, and once <laughs> I'm not going to say I'm not saying it's not great, but once kind of did it for me. I mean, I know that I'm going to get it in 6 months and it's going to be the movie that I want to see, you know.
2: So. I'll I'll watch the extended edition. I don't know if I'll need to watch it a dozen. I don't know if it'll f- fit into my yearly Lord of the Rings we rewatch, but I'll I'll watch the extended edition for sure. Yeah. At least once. It
0: definitely does keep me from buying the first edition of the, you know, the Blu-ray that comes out where it's just a theatrical cut cuz I'm like, I'm not going to give you money twice you know um especially when yeah. that's the one you're not gonna that part want,
1: with so. one single coin. Defi- A one
0: <laughs> single coin anyway so it's not completely chronological but we get to the big battle there at uh, door between gandalf and um, galadriel we've got S- saruman there as well with elrond And Galadriel, you know, walks in all cool and calm to rescue uh, before she turns into the scariest elf queen I've ever seen. Uh, What did you guys kind of think about this? I mean, we've been building it for, you know, three movies now. this kind of showdown with Sauron's first attempt at coming back to Middle-earth.
3: I thought it was a good fight scene. I don't... um... You know, I just didn't fangirl out as much about these films as I did the other films, so I'm I'm not, uh, you know, I can't do the fangirl squee thing about everything. But um, I enjoyed that fight scene. I thought it, I, I thought it was fun to see um, Seraman in in his moment of of uh, still being a good guy before he goes bad. Um, you know, but it wasn't. I didn't. It wasn't a standout scene for me.
2: I think I think it was my least favorite fight scene of the movie unpopular opinion probably um i don't know it felt like it was over too quick but it also felt too long at the same time i'm not really sure what it was that didn't really connect with me but i just didn't there was not enough galadriel in the whole movie i was sad that this was like the only time we really got to see her and i think i prefer her when she's not going nuts
1: you know, the, the interesting thing about that scene, and, and I see it, I usually see movies like first from an art direction standpoint and then a story standpoint, Being because I'm a graphic designer by trade. And I really love the fact that she pulled out the um, the feel of Yorendal because that's the gift that she gives Frodo for him to fight yeah, the I darkness. Did like that. And I thought that was a smart transition, I mean, because they, they drop a lot of details about how they're going to transition from this movie into Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, I, I thought it was nice to have the like a big dragon poo. The big dragon
2: poo.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um it, it was neat to see the uh, the three ring bearers there, you know, all together. Even though that Gandalf was out of the fight, you know, he is one of well not the original of of the Ring of Fire, but the current bearer of the of the Ring of Fire. Uh so it was neat seeing all of them there. It was nice seeing the nine without the black cloaks and you got to see what their their um, armor and their splendor would have looked like if they were corporeal. So, before they got all, you know, hobbled with black cloaks and stuff, I thought that was kind of neat. I, it's weird seeing the whole Sauron bit because it's a little overt the way that they do I it. I think
2: that was my problem with it. It felt too Lord of the Rings overt, I think. Oh, well, there were a lot of things that were... Yeah, there was, um, There was so a, it,
1: all the way back in, uh, in in Desolation, a friend of mine and I were talking about um, Sauron's reveal and comparing it to what Gandalf was feeling when he felt the sensation of the ring on Bilbo's doorstep. And I always thought that that scene, in a scene like this at Dol Guldur, kind of takes the tension out of that particular sensation because... It's not that he doesn't know or doesn't have that sensation. It's just that now the audience has been has been enlightened to the fact that this presence is back. Not in the form of the necromancer because he doesn't have his full strength, but in the fact that this giant flaming eye with his silhouette is hanging around this ruin because this is where he's starting to rebuild his strength. So I'm not sure if they had to go that far with it in both movies, but again, it's there's the the what we know as book readers and the moving going public's expectation of what they need to see so it's a hard line to walk it always has been with these movies to try and figure out what the balance is going to be but for someone who hasn't like your friend uh that came in kind of blinded you know or or without seeing anything it may have been something that may have informed him a little bit better so you kind of have to take that into consideration when you watch these movies not that i agree with it but you know
3: but from a story perspective, if you're, if you're, even if you're not going to make the direct book, you know, connection, you know, how much foreshadowing do you really need? Oh, right, how yeah. much being hit over the head with the hammer do I really need as a viewer? So I don't think it's just book comparisons. I also think it's quality of storytelling and what you decide to reveal and when you decide to reveal yeah,
1: it. Walking that expectation, that balance between, um, again, the expectation of what the audiences can take. It, that's a hard. That's a hard chair to be in for for Fran and Flippa and and, P- and Peter to kind of like dissect all that exposition and say, "Hey, do we need to reinforce this point or not?" Because I agree, it, it's it was a little bit much. But I, you know, I, if you ask somebody that you sat next to, that doesn't know anything about it, he may say like, "Oh, that's what that meant." So it's kind of like it's it's six and one half dozen of the other.
0: I think that for me the. I can tell that the scene is supposed to be longer mm. yeah. and that it's been cut down. And I think, I think Megan, that's probably where you kind of have the issue. It's like it doesn't feel long enough, but it felt too long because they've, they really have kind of whittled that scene down and I, I know it. Like I know that there's going to be more that goes on with that scene and it's going to be in the extended cut and that's really why I want to see it because I think it's actually going to help the scene to be more powerful than what we actually got in in the film here. And I'm ready for that. I mean, like, I I wanted this scene to be longer because I think that this is a big deal Um, because it does go on to uh, show, I think, that these people are vigilant in their jobs. I mean, they're the guardians of Middle-Earth, and they are vigilant. And uh, it also gives you uh, small hints, you know... If you haven't seen the other series or if you haven't read the books, you don't necessarily know exactly how bad Sauron is going to be. Um, and so like if you're a, a kid and you're just seeing these and you've never seen the Lord of the Rings films, uh, you don't know yet. you know. So um, it, what they do is actually subtle. It's not to us because we know all of this stuff. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, the, just the way that Sauron says, leave Sauron to me, well, we know he's going to end up finding a Palantir and he's going to be poisoned so that when Sauron does return, um, you know, when Gandalf goes to him, that's not the right guy to go to. Um, and so, uh, I would have liked to have seen, I think that, uh, we know from Tolkien the white council gladriel wants gandalf to be their leader and she's shot down so that it is Sauron. but she doesn't trust him even at that point so there's this power play that's been going on um i think that that would have been a really interesting tidbit because that actually helps the whole thing um the whole storyline that that you know tolkien had actually put in his writings about this whole bit i just liked that tolkien is not specific about the battle that happens at Doggledore. And so it did let them use their imagination. And we got to see, you know, Galadriel just let loose. And I love that she has the water ring. And so that when she is facing Sauron for the, you know, with the vial there, it looks like she's underwater. And she sounds like she's underwater. Um, because that's that's what her ring's power is, is over water and protection. So it it makes sense that, you know, she can be the one to kind of banish him away, uh, at least far off to the east. So I think the battle is cool. I like you, Norm, I really like um, the Nine and the fact that they're not corporeal yet, but they're kind of corporeal. And we actually get to do, you know, they look splendid in that armor. It looks fantastic. Um, It was funny to watch uh, Christopher Lee's stunt double. Uh, because obviously that's not wizard him. Wizard fighting. Uh, yeah. Yeah, wizard fighting. Um, everybody was wizard
1: fighting. So, I. Were their staffs just, as fast as lightning? It, yes. I think it was a little yeah. bit frightening. So.
0: It was uh, very frightening. So, I, I like. I really like the scene. I just. I know there's a probably going to be more and I I wanted there to be more to that scene because I felt like we've really built up to this in three films just give me the big payoff and don't you know like whittle it down to its barest essential. It was cool. Um I just kind of hoped that it would be a little bit more epic than what they gave us in the movie. So Okay, Alice, you've been shaking your head for a while. So Tell me what you really thought
3: oh no 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 I, I just for some reason the um, the shiny armor for for the for the, the the nine for some reason I kept looking at it just sort of being confused about what was going on so I guess for for me it didn't read as splendor I was I was just I was just confused and I was thinking to myself you know both especially you Matthew and you norm are bringing so much. You know this question between how, how much are you augmenting the story to help people who don't already know? So you're like a complete newbie. You don't. You've never read any of the books. You've never seen any of the films. You're coming at it from totally fresh, versus you guys who who know all of this lore and mythology. You know what kind of ring it is. You know the powers it has, and blah blah blah. And your interpretation and what you're bringing to your knowledge of the films and even augmenting what's already been augmented i think is a is is an interesting you know question in terms of how people are going to react to and, and experience the films and it just as you were talking through the rings and the powers and all that kind of stuff it just really struck me about well gosh these guys really know their freaking stuff man and you know they're <laughs> they're bringing so much more to it already that it's
1: google you,
3: even that I don't know, you know, that a, a newbie would, you know, they wouldn't know Gladriel's ring was the ring of water and that, you know, her voice was supposed to sound like that. I mean, they they might not just be able to make those connections. So I just thought it was interesting.
0: Sometimes it's just Lord of the Rings wiki that's my my main power. <laughs> oh, come on, guys. <laughs>
3: come on.
0: I mean, I have, I mean, I, I've read Lord of the Rings many times and, and I've, I've read The Cimmerillion and I've read The Unfinished Tale. I mean, I have read all these things, but... You know, sometimes allow, I'll admit, I just go to the wiki because (laughs) it's fast and easy and I can get the answer instead of having to pour through you know, copious amounts of Tolkien, which, you know, you kind of need to do because they'll be in an appendice or it'll be in the Cimmerillion or an unfinished tale. And you're just like, well, that's where they pulled
1: a lot of the Council of the White stuff. It's it's from the appendices, you know, so when a lot of fans say like, well, they're really not using Tolkien work. That's not true. It's it's Tolkien work in the appendices from the Fellowship of the Ring or the Lord of the Rings, and they're pulling that because it is part of the history. I mean, that's history that's going on simultaneously with what's happening with the Hobbit in that in that era of Middle Earth. So just because it's not addressed in the books, doesn't mean it's not happening. You know, and they're showing. Oh the, yeah, yeah, no, that wasn't yeah. that wasn't my point no. at all.
3: Not yeah, no, I I know yeah. that the the, the what oh. they've augmented the story with is from other works of Tolkien. That wasn't my point at all.
1: Mm. I, I'm just. you know my brain's just kind of leaking all over the place right now so
2: (laughs) (laughs) well I mean that again that begs the question like yeah for us who know that that is being pulled from other Tolkien works that's great but we're watching a Hobbit movie how necessary is all of that extra stuff as much as I love it like maybe newbie audiences might not need all of that stuff you know I don't know it's an interesting question yeah
1: I think it's fair to say that one of their goals maybe for this movie is not, was to try and make a definite bridge into fellowship.
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. I I think that's an easy argument to make. Clearly that's what they're doing.
3: Yeah, because they
0: do it so obviously
3: (laughs) in many cases.
0: Well, and I would argue that as a filmmaker and as a, you know film company that's exactly what you want to do yeah I mean, it, it would be stupid not to do that because you want to increase the sales of what you've already done but at the same time to kind of answer your question Megan how, do you need to have all those connections well I think that you know uh Peter and and Philippa and Fran would argue look we're just um all, most of what we've added we're pulling from Tolkien to make a more complete story in the same way that Tolkien himself really wanted to rewrite The Hobbit and make it fit with what he wrote with The Lord of the Rings. But he just stopped that project because it was losing that childishness. So he just added those things to other places in his other writings. And um, it it's a good question, you know. Do you adapt The Hobbit as just it is in the the original book, and don't add the things that we know from Tolkien and other places, or do you do that? And you know, they chose to do that. And maybe someday somebody will just do The Hobbit, you know, more like uh, the Rankin Bass cartoon, where it's very much just the book, but they'll do it way Frog better. because Frog so, is
1: awesome. <laughs> yeah.
3: <laughs> and of course they added in things that that weren't in Tolkien anywhere and I think y'all yes, know who I'm talking yes.
0: about. Yes. Yes, they do. <laughs> so, well, between the the battles here, um you've got some things that go on, uh, Thorn yeah. goes crazy, uh and yeah. the elves come to aid, Gandalf finally comes back, and Bilbo gives away the Arkenstone. And I thought what was kind of really interesting about this is that Even in the book, the storyline goes away from Bilbo and becomes a little bit more of Thorin's story. And so they really do that in this movie is is they kind of give you this whole struggle of a a king returning and being worried a lot like Aragorn that he will repeat the sins of his fathers. Um, And that the same, you know, blood that flows in my veins flows in theirs, as Aragorn says and, and so Thorne has this problem, except that he actually does what Aragorn doesn't do and really becomes a complete D-bag for a while. A dwarf bag? Um, and, <laughs> yeah, a dwarf bag, a exactly. Here. And almost has everybody killed, basically. Uh, what did you guys kind of think about the way that they deal with, you know, the way Thorne goes crazy and with the treasure and, and all of that and how they portray it and everything?
1: Well, it was very One Ring-ish. You know, because they were yeah. the allegory of the one ring and the allegory um, to the gold, the gold hoard in the halls of Erebor. I mean, he was really kind of treating it the same way that Bilbo treats looking at the ring or Frodo treated looking at the ring with this almost kind of like a, a junkie's kind of a reaction to seeing, you know, his fix. He's like, this is mine. You know, and he actually kind of went that way. He's like, this is not one single coin. It's more like my precious. It's the same thing. Really. And I think they needed to they wanted to bring that overtone to this movie because there needed to be this untangible villain. And that villain was this this sickness that was over Thorne, this hold that it had over him. And he had to rise to the occasion where he had he had to break that he had to break that connection. He had to become and find his nobility again. And so that the dwarves would follow him into battle and well, we all know the rest. I'm not gonna repeat the movie but it's there 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 really were a lot of similarities I thought between the ring sickness and the gold sickness
3: I can't argue with that um I do I do feel like um that that greed for me really you know that for for me that is what is the evil in the book um it is greed and with all of the subsequent battles that happen with Azog and Blarg, if I'm saying that correctly, um, sort of takes away from from really portraying greed as as the evil. I, th- there were moments in Thorin's th- the showing of Thorin's sickness, I guess that because that's that's the part that really moved me in, in the film more than the romance. Actually, that's when I got the feels. Uh, it was around um, Thorin and his. Recovery from the sickness, but there I have to again say that there were some shots in there where I, they just it just felt so stretched to me. I'm like, yes, Richard Armitage, wonderful actor, and gosh, he's damn good looking. So I'll look at him all that I can. But I really have I have interpreted the emotion. I don't need to see it for what feels like three minutes. Can we please cut that shot and move on? Um, uh, so, you know, it was really mixed for me because that that really was the part of the story that um, I'm the most attached to is having greed be the bad guy. so it was it was mixed for me.
2: yeah, i um, I enjoy that part of the story, and I enjoyed watching Richard Armitage's uh, descent into greed. <laughs> there were some scenes that were a little long, and I felt they felt a little. They felt cheesy. They just felt straight cheesy to me. Um, but I still, <laughs> they just felt cheesy, especially the the gold floors sinking away and swallowing him whole. Um, I was glad when we got through it so that we could see the, the 13 battle. Um, <laughs> that was really just what I was looking forward to. I
0: think I can hear exactly what you guys are saying, but i also think that if if they go there and thorin kind of gets sick and then he's all of a sudden better, you know, it, they need it to they need to feel like that there isn't a hope for thorin, like that this is going on too long because if it doesn't then it's it becomes like that that silly movie magic of like oh well he's better, you know, i got better. Hmm. um and and we, you need to feel like that there isn't a hope that thorin is going to get better you know and and so by protracting it and making you feel uncomfortable with how long this is lasting is kind of the point of of how bad this is you know for everyone it's it's not just thorin but it's going to his greed could cost all of middle earth at this point and so um you know like you were saying um, Alice, I think that for me was one of the most powerful things is is they they don't let loose on the whole greed issue. They keep poking it and poking it and poking it, and and they they push it and it and it is like okay, I get it, but it's also the very. I think very much the theme of the story because there's greed for everyone in 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 this story in a way. I mean, we see it obviously with Alfred in in a very silly way. We see it with Thranduil in in a very real way. Um, we even kind of uh see it in in the rest of the dwarves and how they're wa- wishy-washy and sometimes they're kind of cheering their king and, and other times they're uncomfortable with him. They don't really have to do. Um and and then obviously Bilbo has his own selfish reasons for everything is and and that was one of the things I I just liked about the the movie and so um, but I can hear what you're saying and so it's again we're talking about walking that tightrope with a film and and how much do you put on screen and how far do you go with it and yeah I can get kind of silly sometimes and and how do you depict somebody getting out of a almost a mental illness like this kind of greed seems to be with, you know, these these dwarves who, as we know from Tolkien, already have a natural proclivity for gold and fine things that they mine in the earth. And that's the sin of Moria as well as that greed. They keep digging and digging and digging until they uncover a Balrog. And then all hell literally breaks loose and they all die. So, um, it, Tolkien is Catholic and so his idea of that there is an innate evil nature in all of us it a lot of times it comes out at the worst times really goes to show in this film I think with the way that these dwarves their natural proclivities kind of come forth yeah. especially when around a horde of gold that as Thorin starts to talk about is worth more than all the lives out there
3: yeah, I, I didn't mean to because I, I do actually enjoy the build of the um, sickness of the greed. For, for me, it was, it was more micro shot. Like, I, okay. I don't need the close up on Richard Armitage's face okay. while he's going through the <laughs> micro emotions to go on quite that long, not the whole story arc. Just to clarify.
1: I would have liked to have seen something along the lines of how that one flash that Bilbo had when he saw the ring in Rivendell in, in fellowship where you see a little bit of the, mm. of a darkness kind of pass. Cause in the book, it says like a shadow passed over him over his face. It would have been nice to have seen some, some just practical makeup effects where you just saw his eyes get a little bit more sullen or dark. You just saw a little bit of a almost um, kind of like a different fleshiness about him because the sickness was taking over almost physically and then, when he came to the realization and snapped out of it, much like um, the way that uh, that Gandalf snapped out um, Theoden, uh, Theoden out of his sickness, it was you, you, there was this realization: the king is back. He's he's kind of been removed from this this veil that's been clouding his mind, and returning himself uh, through his own um, volition for, from his realization that he needed to become something else, something greater. Um, because essentially it was, you know, he was sick.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and I actually thought that Richard Armitage did a, a really good job of bringing something like that himself that they didn't necessarily do with special effects, but that he as an actor brought to the scenes. Um, And I noticed that when he was being greedy, Thorin, he, you know, was very much leading with his forehead and looking up at everybody through his eyelashes in a very mincing manner. Um, But then you really see it happen in the scene where he gives Bilbo the me thrill um, and his face lights up and he's just, you know, speaking with his friend the Hobbit and he's leading with his chin and he's smiling and you see they're lighting him from the bottom a little bit differently. Um... So, I thought Richard Armitage did a fantastic job of just emoting his face differently to show the way that that greed was taking over him. And you see that again in the scene where he's with, um, with Doran when he's, when, you know, his cousin is reaching out to him with Bilbo hovering around in the background. Um, I thought Richard Armitage did a fantastic job with that.
3: I agree. Yeah.
0: And I, I'm with you. I mean, I, I think. Um one of the saving graces of all of the Hobbit films in in a lot of ways has been Martin Freeman and Richard Armitage in their performances and that anytime I feel like that they're on screen and especially when they're acting together, I feel like it's really really well done. Uh, those two going off each other I think is just so fabulous I, you know especially when we talk about the end of the film I I think their scene is is, maybe my favorite and it gives me the man tears i'm not (laughs) gonna lie uh because it's such a beautifully well done scene and so fantastic job again of of finding actors who can portray through makeup and and you know crazy feet and all these things and just push that aside and give you scenes like this um and so i thought that was really cool we end up with uh The elves coming in and and, uh, Thranduil comes and and he gives the people aid, which I thought was cool, but obviously not real altruistic because basically he has a score to settle with, uh, you know, Erebor as well at this point. (laughs) And uh, what did you guys think of the scene where Gandalf and Thranduil and the Bard are all sitting there talking and, you know, Thranduil is basically badmouthing Gandalf. Because, again, this is not something we see a ton of in the movies. You know, usually Gandalf walks into a room and everybody has kind of respect. But here Threndril just seems to be very dismissive of wizards.
3: I didn't, it didn't, it's not a scene that played heavily in my memory because I'm, I'm having a hard time remembering it right now. So it, it didn't, it must not have had that big of an impact for me.
2: Yeah, I mean, I were, I think I'm kind of the same.
1: You know, going back into the whole lore thing, Thranduil was at—he was at the Battle of the Dagger Lad, which was like the one—the one war where they were able to defeat Sauron. That's where Elendil and was able to—you know—they—they they were able to sever the—you know—the whole thing, which makes him really ancient, as ancient as Elrond. So when he sees a wizard, he's just like, "Dude, come on, I've been <laughs> around. You know, you're not impressing me, and most of the time, you, you guys are spouting tales of nonsense and." tomfoolery and lore and you know you're reading from dusty books and you're you're, you're disheveled you know your mushroom riddled brains and you know you like halfling leaves and all that kind of stuff I mean look at me look how awesome I look you know <laughs> that
3: KP like, wears you know, is freaking awesome you know, my
1: sword is amazing uh my 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 armor hair is, is fabulous uh, this is yeah. this is this is through years of discipline and hard work and working out this is p90x of elves, <laughs> you know, and look at you—you you know, you're you're Twinkie eating you know, wizard. So of course he's gonna—I mean, all kidding aside—you know, he's 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 not gonna take him seriously. He, the elves, really—I mean, at that level, maybe Elrond does because Gandalf is a ring bearer. But aside from that, though, Thranduil has always been a little bit standoffish. I mean, that's that's how he always has been. He's been standoffish, paranoid, and. Within his own borders. Isolationist. So, yeah. Yeah. Isolationist. Isolationist and elitist. Yeah. You know for an elf.
0: Yeah. Well, that scene ends with Bilbo coming with the Arkenstone stone to those guys. And I I think that, again, that was one of those scenes where Martin Freeman just steals my heart away. <laughs> like the way that he talks about the dwarves and how much that he really has come to appreciate them and he doesn't want them dead. You know, he's trying to save them. And so for, for him, this is something else we want to talk about later, I think with the themes, but the loyalty and what it means to be a real friend is a big part of this movie. It's a huge part of this movie. And Bilbo throughout this movie, this whole movie, and even throughout this whole series of movies has been a true friend to these people who came into his house, trashed it and then left all expecting him to be a burglar to go up against a dragon. Uh, you know, so it's I I just really love the way that he plays this scene because it's so earnest and it's so true
3: yeah it was definitely one of the the big feels moments for me I definitely had tears in my eyes during that scene
0: well we get finally to the battle of the five armies and dwarves and elves and men all go to the war at the same time and I think that this is the other thing that really separates this series from the Lord of the Rings series is that the Lord of the Rings has a lot of men in it and very little else Um, because in the end, you know, we have Gimli and we have Legolas, um, but we don't really get a lot of elves or dwarves or anything else in the film. It's very much this is the world of men taking over by the time Lord of the Rings comes around this is probably the last really huge battle that we see, and it's with elves, men, dwarves, orcs, you know, eagles, bats, I mean, all of these different creatures of Middle-earth going to war against each other. What did you guys think about this, especially since we've seen, you know, the, the Lord of the Rings series, and we've seen big battles before, how did you think that this worked out and kind of compared just this main battle once the dwarves get there and they end up going to war with you know uh the orcs that have come through
2: that was a huge battle i mean (laughs) that's like the understatement of the century right (laughs) but i mean i don't know it was just gigantic i really enjoyed um i really enjoyed finally getting to some of the major action this is one of the things that i think peter jackson does incredibly well is these huge battle scenes with multiple armies converging um it was just so much fun to watch.
3: Yeah, I don't, for me, I um, there's a a scale for me that that I think, as we talked about um, for the unexpected journey and the sort of the physics of the the Goblin Cavern of go, uh, Goblin Town, um, there's a scale in these films that I feel like Peter Jackson pushes at times a little bit too much, um, and. For me, although I enjoyed the big battle scenes, it was really the smaller moments that that really appealed to me. Like stupidly or silly for me, um, the way that the, all of the elves twirled out of the way for the moose as it came <laughs> yeah, through. Like, yeah, that was, it was amazing. Those, <laughs> it was little. It was little things like that that really were more appealing to me in terms of terms as opposed to these big, huge, massive amounts of CGI people moving here and moving there. It was the little things
0: that that drew me in. So Dane rides up on a hog, a battle hog. <laughs> what did you guys think? Uh, and this is the first time we I mean we've seen Gimli fight, but we've never seen an army mm-hmm. of dwarves
2: fight. I loved that. Um
0: and and actually this is really kind of the first time that we see a whole army of elves fight and men fight and they're all fighting at the same time like this is a I think what was great is it is a very different feel than the Lord of the Rings series and I just loved getting to see all these different races go at battle together in a way that we just hadn't seen before what did you guys kind of think of especially the dwarves uh, who we we've never seen a whole army they've got awesome you know shields locking and, and it just ugh, yeah I love so their cool. battle
2: formations that was amazing and the way that the elves just came right in after them um was kind of perfect. it was like watching a middle earth war dance <laughs> you know the
1: coolest thing was uh you, you got to see the cultures because when you're when you're dealing with something so massive you you almost have to see it from a macro and a micro experience because the macro experience was the rank and file when you're seeing it from azog's tower, and you get to see all their formations and how they subtly graded all the different armies with different just tints of color. Mm -hmm. But then you get to the micro experience and then those dwarves were moving very economically, but the elves were moving very fluidly. And it's almost as if these were kind of larger versions and foreshadowings of how Gimli and Legolas were fighting back-to-back at Helm's Deep, the two different styles. So it's nice to see that their cultures were really kind of like coming to the forefront and showing off not only the way that they moved, but how the decisions of how they built their armor came to bear, the the locking of the shields and the the way that they were able to do their spear formations. And then the way that the, the elves were able to again, twirl around uh, and move very gracefully, but at the same time, very tactfully. So when I played the Lord of the Rings card game many years ago, What we talked about uh, were how all of these different races were organized into cultures and how you can identify them. And the elves had this just this great organic looking leaf like armor, gave them a nice lightness to it. And the the dwarves were just solid slabs of things. And then you had the orcs and the orcs kind of like I was a little disappointed in the orcs. Actually, I loved the orcs from Fellowship. They felt a little bit more tactile they had a little bit more weight to them these orcs definitely felt a little bit more computer generated and not as uh not as menacing even the close-ups of the orcs weren't as menacing the only real menacing orc was well two were the azog and bulk because they had personalities the rest were just even at close-ups they were f- kind of toothless orcs if that's possible Well, and
2: these are a different breed of orcs right
1: well they're not the uruk you know and they're right by, you know.
0: Yeah, they're definitely not Urukai and they they come from a, a different part of Middle Earth as well. So there is a there is a difference between them and for sure. Um, but I get what you're saying, Norm, because yeah, uh, um, you know watching through uh, Lord of the Rings right now, there is kind of a more visceral feel to the, the Urukai, the orcs, the goblins, all of that that wasn't quite here, and and maybe that has to do with the fact that. Um, Some of that is downplayed just a little bit because it's The Hobbit. It's a little bit lighter and it's not quite as... Maybe it's not supposed to be quite as evil and gross yet. Um, Whereas when you get to The Lord of the Rings, everything's just like evil gross. You know, (laughs) like uh, it's as bad as it gets. So I don't know if that was their... That's my speculation. Um, I thought one of the best things about this is that I don't get lost geography-wise. They give me enough aerial shots so I understand, okay, I know where the orcs are coming from. I know where the mountain is. I know where Ravenhill is, which is where um, Azog is, and I know where Dale is. And so that I don't ever feel like I'm getting lost in, in the battle, which is pretty amazing because, you know, the plains area there is a massive space. And it would be easy, I think, for a less experienced filmmaker to have you feel like i don't know where i am and yet i never feel like that because he's been able to give every area a distinctive feel you know you have the plains you have your raven hill you've got the where the orcs come out of the mountain and you've got dale uh, and you've got the very front of erebor and i know where all of that is and so I have to say, though, Billy Connolly as Dane was just freaking awesome. Mm. <laughs> and the fact that he... Maybe the only time in The Lord of the Rings somebody actually curses. <laughs> like, he's cursing at the, the the elves, you know, calling them bastards and telling them to saw it off. I mean, uh, you know, people in England aren't offended because they don't get offended like that kind of language. But uh, I thought that that was great uh, just to kind of see this, this whole... <laughs> and when Gandalf says... I've always found Thorin to be the more reasonable of the two. You just know what you're going to get. Yeah. It's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so we get to the point in the battle where if Thorin doesn't come to his senses soon, everybody's probably going to die. And what did you guys think of the scene with his redemption?
3: Uh, I mean, I'm I'm glad it came, obviously, because it it has to come <laughs> for me, for, you know, to make the story what it should be. Um, but again, it it wasn't um, you know there's this this big part with the battling between when he has his recovery to when he gives his speech with with um, Bilbo that that just takes too long for me. Like I want that moment to be to be closer or to be more special or or something. Um, but you know they you know they suit up, they put their armor on and they charge out of the castle, you know, I mean that's a pretty. Typical moment in an action-adventure film. And, you know, it worked okay for me.
1: What about you, Norm? It's um. This is a difficult thing because I think that this is probably the one time in the movie that I felt that there was a little bit of a pacing issue between the ups and downs, the emotional ups and downs of what was going on with trying to focus on Thorin and trying to focus on his turn. Because... It's a, I mean, it's a pretty monumental turn. I mean, he's basically saying, hey, I have to become the leader again. And then you have the real time of what's going on with these battles. So it almost feels like it's um, truncated a little way. It's almost, you, you feel a little cheated when it comes to how much he had to wrestle with what was going on, but it is a movie and we're under the constraints of time, so I get that. But I never felt that it was... A difficult transition for um, not for him to make but it was it didn't feel like there was just like oh my god it's like you gotta change you gotta change it was okay let me put it this way I'm gonna cross the streams here a little bit and I'm gonna go to the end of Return of the Jedi when Luke was trying to fight this entire time not to pick that saber up and he kept getting pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed because you know the Emperor says your friends will die the army on Endor will die. Everyone that you love will die. And right up to the very last point, he had to hold off until he could hold off no more. And I didn't really feel that from Thorn. It was just kind of mm. like, "Hmm, okay, it's time to go." And I'm going to drop all this all of my father's armor and drop my crazy looks off and then, you know, pick up just my old sword and a regular shield and not even put like battle armor on and go to war. It it was a little clunky for me, I'll be honest.
2: Yeah, I agree with you. I think there, I think it was lacking in some kind of, I don't know, there was something lacking in his transition from greed to being willing to go out and fight. Um, They got through it pretty quickly, um, so I was happy when we finally get to the, the warrior shot of him coming upstairs to greet the rest of the dwarves and um I was glad when uh Philly says I I can't just sit around here and I'm going to go out there and he agrees with him. I was glad when we I was glad when we just finally got through it. Um but yeah, I'm with you Norm. It was a little clunky there for sure.
0: I think I'm on I guess the opposite side from you guys because I I liked how they had shown his descent, you know that you know they when Philly and Keely uh and uh, the rest of the guys arrive who had been left in Lake Town. I and mean, Bilbo's like, you have to get out. You see the change that's been happening in, in Thorin. Is he goes more and more crazy. He puts more and more of his grandfather on. Um, you know, with his clothes and his crown and his jewels and everything. And so I, I liked the whole wrestling scene. And I'm not sure exactly... I feel like that part could have been better like the whole wrestling scene and the you know the gold floor kind of giving way and all that kind of stuff um I guess i I can see where they're going with that that the idea that the gold and the greed is gonna actually swallow him and as it will swallow the rest of middle earth at this point as well um but i I love that they had given you the subtle clues though of him putting all of this on and so when he's hearing the voices that have been, Nagging at him the whole time, like when Bilbo said something to him, or um, you know the Bardis said something to him, or Gandalf, or or any of these things, or even himself of saying, "I'm not going to become my grandfather. I'm not going to become my grandfather. I'm not going." You know, um, I'll bring it real personal for a minute. I said the same thing about my dad. I wasn't going to become him, and then I found myself being my dad and making a lot of the same choices he did. And that hurt a lot of people. So I can feel what Thorin is feeling at that moment. And for me it works because I don't know how you put that on screen. I don't think you can put that on screen. And so anything they do is going to feel not good enough. But when he throws the crown and he starts to just pull all that off. and, And he goes out and basically he's just Thorin. The guy that we've been following for the rest of the films. And he stripped all of that off. I think that this is a really nice, subtle way of them doing it instead of having it to be over the top because it's just never going to be good enough. Um, And then his beautiful statement of, I have no right to ask you, but will you follow me one last time? And that is just really powerful. Um, I I really, I think that's my my second favorite scene of this whole movie just because he's also admitting to all of them I, you have no right to be following me anymore, Um, but I know what we need to do, and so will you follow me to do it. And uh, I thought that was really powerful. So, um, and it, and it probably means more to me because it's more personal. Sure. Um, and and so, I was just gonna say
3: that it's interesting that, that you bring up the subtlety there because I think one of the, the things for me that I I struggled with 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 all three of these films, but this one in particular was was the juxtaposition between the scales. So the, the play of the subtle moment against the spectacle. And I feel like at times there was so much distance between the subtle moment and the spectacle that the subtle moments um, could get lost. And because they were surrounded by so much spectacle, they either needed to feel quote unquote bigger um to meet the rest of the spectacle of the film or you know they just didn't have you know they ended up not having the impact that they they might have um which perhaps is strange because you would think like if everything else is so spectacle the subtle moments would would stand out more but I really had the op they had the op- it had the opposite effect on me
2: I'm really glad that you pointed out the um the way that he was putting on his grandfather's clothing, because I hadn't even thought of that. Um, and, yeah, that makes a lot more sense now that you've pointed that out to me. That was fantastic. That was really well done. Um, yeah. That's Apparently really cool. it was really
3: subtle. Yeah, cause. it was really subtle. It went <laughs> yeah. right over my head.
2: In my defense, <laughs> we went and saw like one of the last screenings of the evening. But, um, man, I wish I had noticed that in the theater.
0: Well, now you just have a great reason to go and and see it again. And I I do have to admit, I mean, I've seen it twice, so it helps
2: um, (laughs) to be able to pick
0: some of those things up, you know, in a way that you might not in your first viewing. But there I think that um, a lot of people don't realize just how subtle Peter Jackson can be. And there's a lot more subtlety when you watch through the films again than you realize the first time because you kind of like you said Alice you're definitely caught up in the spectacle and it's those big things that just slap you across the face that you get but when you go back there's a lot of times when you'll realize there's a connection point and a you know point of dialogue in the first or second movie that really come into play in the third movie and and those kind of things that they they do well because they're making as Peter Jackson says he feels like he's making one movie and he makes one of these trilogies and it's split into three parts. And so very much The Hobbit is really one big, huge story. I think it's sometimes easier for him to do that, um, to, to kind of put in those subtle moments that play across maybe three films or, or whatever that we might not necessarily catch the first time. Um, and I think that's that's kind of neat he's a better filmmaker than I think a lot of people give him credit for and and unfortunately he's also a victim of his own success and that now that he's been so successful at this point it's really cool to tear Peter Jackson down and that's just the way geek culture goes and I think it's really sad because we build our hero up you know as a filmmaker and then we love to just rip him apart because it becomes the chic thing to do to be you know the, the geek cynic Um, And I I find that really sad. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't have valid criticisms of a filmmaker for some of the choices they might make. But at the same time, I think geek culture really has gone in this this kind of cycle of we like somebody a lot and then we just kind of start to tear them down uh, once they get too successful. I'm just kind of waiting for it to happen to Joss Wheaton. Oh, oh,
3: I'm
2: sure that's Yeah, coming.
3: I was going to say. Well, I mean, I, I, it's it's uh, it's a hard thing to be, you know, because there is so much squee in in geek culture, you know? So if, if you're going to start from a place where you're not going to look at something critically and you're just going to say, everything that Joss does is awesome versus being able to look at everything that he does. I mean, Firefly's not perfect. I didn't think Firefly was perfect the first time I saw it. Do I still love it? Absolutely. Um but you know, if you can't come to something from the very beginning with a critical eye, then yes, I think in the end it does feel like you, you put this person up on a pedestal and, and you're gonna you're gonna tear them down, um, you know. But I, you know, for me that issue of scale and subtlety is bigger in these three films than it was in the Lord of the Rings, so it stands out as a problem more for me here than it did in the
0: first three films. And I think part of that too is that the Hobbit, in general, is more. Fairytaleish. The whole story is more fairytaleish, yeah. and those those kind of actions are much bigger and less rooted and kind of a reality than they are just kind of the big action adventure, fun storytelling elements that we, uh, you know, have as as kids with maybe like a Disney type cartoon. Uh, that's kind of more how I think of of the Hobbit uh, than I do the Lord of the Rings, which is it's a much more serious and darker tone which obviously tolkien even recognizes himself so that really kind of changes how we view the hobbit and and therefore the films as well those those points of highs and lows are going to be very different than they are in in the original films just because the source material is much more happy-go-lucky than in a lot of ways than say the lord of the rings and um so I don't know. It, it Again, that's a, one of those conversations I think we're going to be having for a long time with, with all of these films and how they play out. And it'll be interesting to see what people think, I guess, in you know 15 years, how they age and, and what people end up thinking of the whole saga and then the two different trilogies. So we round out in end the big Ravenhill battle and that's kind of broken up into different areas. But first off, all I want for Christmas is a badass battle ram. <laughs> Those were gorgeous. I was going to say it. Those things were awesome. I like, that was, that was just, uh, I, I did fanboy moment for me. This was like, that's a really fun, cool idea. Uh, we've had a battle hog and now I didn't think that could get any better, but now we've got rams. So um, <laughs> that was really fun and I, I felt like a really just kind of cool heroic moment again for thorin who's just come out of being crazy and you know he's he's made up with his his cousin dane who's been asking why it's taken him so long and and now we're heading to the the smaller battles you know the ones that are going to mean something because they're kind of the ones we've been waiting to have play out with thorin and azog and and you know who's who's going to kill Bolg. You know, so:
2: yeah, I was laughing really hard in the movie theater when they showed up, actually, because for me, there was a lot going on there. First of all, they just conveniently appear out of nowhere, but then they're oh, yeah. totally awesome. Um, and then as they're riding up the side of the mountain on the other side of the battle, um, I just started thinking about the Holy Grail with the coconuts. <laughs> because of the way their, oh, yeah. the way that their <laughs> hooves clomped on the stone sounded incredible. Um, I thought that was a great moment in the story. Feely
0: and Keely. These two in the book, they don't make it. And uh, it's sad, actually, because I remember in the book there's some of the dwarves who have the most uh, life to them. Um, one, they're younger, and they play that in the film as well. Uh, what did you guys think about the way they do... Uh, well, their sad demise in uh, the film.
1: Well, I mean, we were understanding that that now this is the last of the line of Durin, you know. So between the brothers and and Thorin, and I mean, there all there obviously is that the romantic story with, gosh, I don't know, is it it's Keely?
2: Yeah, it's Keely and Toriel.
1: And I mean, that that served a great narrative purpose for for Toriel's character, obviously from. From desolation of smog, but I think that because of that relationship, his his ending was a lot more impactful than his brothers. I mean, his brother. Yeah, they they kind of like they, you know, Azog had him had a feely in in one hand. He had his you know hook in his stump, and he's like, you know, he's taunting Thorn. It's like, look, you failed. I don't care how successful you think you are. This is the last of your line, and you can't even protect him. How are you going to protect your kingdom again? Because you can't protect your own kin. Stab done, you know, but I uh, and and as as horrible as that was, it still didn't pay off nearly as much as as this this uh, this love that was lost for an elf that's never experienced love. I thought that was actually kind of impactful for something that didn't exist in the book, you know. I thought that was actually well written, you know. So,
2: well, I thought, um seeing both of them die on camera definitely was more impactful than what happened in the, in the book, because in the book we kind of find out after the fact it's, it happens off screen or off page, um, that Philly and Killy, you know, go down in battle protecting Thorin. Um, I, I still could have done without the, the Tariel love story. Um, I feel like it kind of took away from the brotherhood um, between Fili and Kili and their kinship with Thorin and the way that they died protecting him in the story. Um, but seeing it on camera and them being two of the dwarves that I think people identify with definitely made it harder to, harder to see happen um, and definitely was much more impactful.
3: It was not so for me, but... Movie fell apart for, at the end for me, so <laughs> not the very very end. I like the denouement, but the the um, the climax of the battle scenes with everyone sh- fighting their little
0: individual things was was not impactful for me at all. Actually, I I I was had to see them them die. Obviously, um, I I thought the way that Feely died was and um, in, and in being unceremonious was was kind of nice uh, yeah. because that's very much warfare and just the the brutal uh, nature of the orcs and azog uh and how much pleasure he takes in in ending another of the line of durin and how he's hopeful that he will do that to the entire line and he will have completed basically i think his life's mission to to, to kill all of these people um i i thought that that was really well done I liked that uh, the, the battle between Keely and, and Bolg I thought was really great and he holds his own for a while and then of course you know he's going to die and I love the way that Bolg kills him you know he's just the fact that he's standing there he's got him there's nothing he can do and he just stabs him right in front of Tariel I thought was it was pretty um, impactful because it does add a little bit more to that death to me um but i can hear what alice is saying too if you don't really like the romance you're not gonna really care and so i i just liked that the the only thing that i was disappointed with 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 the whole tariel thing i really wanted her to be the one to kill bolg at that point um i felt like that would have been a much better move uh, cinematically than having legolas do it it just meant less coming from legolas because legolas doesn't really have the um the reason for wanting to kill Bolg. I mean, other than he's the bad guy and he's in love with Tariel and Tariel's in love with Keeley and, well, he just hurt Tariel, you know, and so now it's Legolas's turn to hurt, you know, and kill Bolg. Um, So I was just disappointed because I felt like that storyline for her would have much more payoff if she had killed one of the big bads. I was just disappointed because we'd already had, you know, Galadriel go and scare off Sauron with all her power the boys don't do it she does Um, I thought it would have been a great girl power moment if she's the one who kills what is clearly a very big bad in this film like you know Legolas has already gone up with against Bolg before he didn't you know kill him so so the scene between him and Legolas it was fine I mean it, it just doesn't have as much emotion for me than if it had been Tariel doing it. Um, I think it would have added to her character and given her a little more legitimacy in the film if it had been her. Whereas I feel like they just relegate her to romance and that's disappointing. Um, they choreograph it because they take away all of her weapons. Um, so at this point she kind of is defenseless and she does her best to kill him and she almost does by throwing him down a mountain but doesn't quite work. It just... It could have been better, I think.
2: I agree. I think it would have. um, I think it deflated a lot of the emotion from that scene as well that they disarmed her in the way that they did, and that then it turned into another five minute battle scene between him and Legolas after we'd already seen very heightened emotion um, in this fight. And I think it would have made her character. A lot easier to reconcile for me I think it and it just deflated that scene so much for me it was I enjoyed that was one of the few scenes of their love story that I enjoyed um the way that Keely looked at her as he was dying I thought was very powerful um but it just totally deflated the scene that she just Falls over the side of the cliff with him, and that's kind of the end of it for her.
1: It would have been neat to I think if if she was able to kill him with his own weapon, because
2: yes, because
1: yeah. elves have a certain grace to their fighting style and they fight with very elegant weapons. But because of what she felt at the at his death at Keeley's death, it was rage, it was yeah. loss, it was this this pit in her stomach that she's never felt before, and that would have inspired her to pick up just this disgusting orc weapon to end this this creature this creature that did nothing but bring death and sorrow to the lives of so many people including her own
2: and yeah it, i completely agree but
1: then because i'm thinking about it in my head and she would have looked at her hands and her hands would have been shaking it's like well you know this is what this means this is what this means to love or feel human or to feel remorse or to feel pain you know I mean I I was an elite captain of the guard and now this is what I've become because of this human emotion. You know it's almost a almost a a vulcan expression in a way.
3: Well, I did get the sense that elves never felt love. That's definitely not wasn't my interpretation of you know that elves elves are vulcan and they feel no emotion. It was That's a different kind I think it was a different kind of
1: passion. It was more it wasn't like this uh because we saw how Celeborn and Galadriel are they're very Serene with their expressions to each other. It's not this outwardly. I don't know. It's it was a different. It just felt like a different vibe between what she felt towards Kili than what I think that she would feel towards Legolas. It was that was very sterile in a way. You know, there was emotion there, but it wasn't really um, connecting. I don't know. I don't know how to describe
3: so, it. So, yeah. so human emotion is the 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 penultimate or the ultimate, the acme <laughs> of emotion, and our our viral, you know, <laughs> is really what
0: it's all about. Gotcha. Uh, <laughs>
1: especially with dwarves, you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, then, you know, we get to Thorin and, and Azog fighting. What I I liked about this fight scene was just the fact that. Um, Thorin is very much resolved to do whatever it takes to defeat this person like he he cannot let this person stand and I loved that you know the way that Thorin dies is that he allows himself to be um, impaled because then Azog isn't going to be paying attention. I just I thought it was a' it was a great fight scene and doing a fight scene between the two bads, at the very end of the movie at, at this point, I think it's really hard to do. Um, but I, I just liked this one um, because I I felt um, especially at the very end of the fight scene, I felt like Richard Armitage was really selling it what his choice to make, which his choice was the way to beat this person is for me to die too. I'm willing to do that at this point. and that self-sacrifice is, I, I think obviously when you portray it on screen like that, it's one of the truest forms of love of to give your life for others. And so by taking away this, this evil from the world, I really liked seeing that. And, um, I just, I can't get enough Richard Armitage. I'm like you guys, Uh, you know, I just think he's really fantastic as an actor and uh, I love the way that he just sells those small moments there. So his fight with um, Azog wasn't about how long it went on or how cool it was. It just came down to that small moment that subtle moment of his choice and his facial expressions, I I thought was really what was the most powerful part of it.
2: Well, and there's a couple of moments like that, right? Like one of the things I really liked about that scene is how smart he fought because there's the moment where he just steps off of the ice block and allows the the ice to flip him over. I mean, that's a really smart move, um, especially in the heat of battle. And then for him to then later on make that sacrifice, I think, I think it just showed a lot about his character and how far he'd come in a short period of time after getting over his dragon sickness. Meh.
3: I mean, if you want cheesy, for if 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 the dragon Sisters sickness part was cheesy for you, Megan, that, that battle was cheesy for me. <laughs> it and was I'm, cheesy for you. I'm so tired of the bad guys not dying like three, four <laughs> fracking times, for heaven's <laughs> sakes. A- can we just move it along, people?
2: I will say there was a fellow audience member that took all of the tension out of that fight scene after Azog went under the ice. She's like, He's not dead, is he? He's not really dead. And then you see him floating by under the ice. His eyes are closing. Look, his eyes are closing. He's going to open them again. (laughs) Like the whole theater could hear her. I was like, thanks, lady. Yeah, we we know. We know. We've all seen movies before. (laughs) But I still thought it was enjoyable.
0: And I think that's the hardest part of crafting any of these scenes. Like we just kind of feel like we've seen it all. I don't know if it's any more successful if you just off them super quickly like then people will be like oh I felt cheated like we we watch <laughs> we mean we watch in three movies for this you know so it's like it's like I can't win either way that's true uh, that's so a great point it's it's a really frustrating thing it's got to be as a filmmaker to be like okay how do I try to do anything original here when this story isn't necessarily super original in any of its plot threads uh, in a lot of ways Um, you know because we just film wise, uh, you've seen so many of these kind of things happen before, and it's apparently so that I, woman,
2: yeah, except for her. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So it's it's a tough call. um Well, I I, I wanted to uh, just mention a couple of things. I I wish the scenes um, with um, uh, Bayorn fighting were just a little bit longer. That was super cool when he drops out of the sky with uh, Radagast and the Eagles. Thought that was a great yeah. scene. Um, just a fantastic um, uh, showing of his power and makes a lot of sense why we spend a lot of time with him in the uh, Desolation of Smaug because we don't spend any time with him uh, really in this film. And so if he just drops out of the sky for no reason and we haven't really been to his house long enough, we would have just been lost uh, if, if you hadn't read the book before didn't really know what was going on.
2: That was almost like a blink and you'll miss it
0: yeah, part, yeah which
2: I found really disappointing like you and I were discussing yep. last time he that's you know he's one of my favorite characters and I was really happy to see him enter the battlefield but I wish we could have seen more of that well and
0: he's in the rest of the book he travels with Bilbo and Gandalf. They travel back to his house. They stay there again. I think that's probably going to be in the extended cut. And it, it makes for some great scenes because Bill gets the opportunity to have those um, goodbyes to all the people that he's met. And they just really cut that short in the film. And I was really disappointed because I would have liked to have seen some of those things play out longer. Especially since the dwarves are just left and we have no idea what happens to them. Like... We don't know who becomes king. We don't know at least if all you've seen is the movie. You have no idea what happens to any of these peoples. Bilbo just leaves and it's like see ya. You know, like there I feel like you could have some payoff for people who have just only seen the movies. They don't know what happens to the people of Lake Town that they are going to rebuild Dale. It's Bard who becomes their leader. You know, I mean, we've spent time with all of these people. It'd be nice to see just a little bit of that kind of nice resolution
1: to the end of the story. So that that was just my thought. That's where it's hard for me to interject a lot of how I feel about this movie because I don't think that I've seen the entire movie. It's, it was the same way with Return of the King. the the, um, the emotional ending of Return of the King wasn't nearly as strong theatrically as it was for me in the extended edition because you got to see the goodbyes. You got to see the the journey back, which was just as important. And I just didn't feel like... They compressed a lot of emotional content in a very short amount of time. The, the scene with Bilbo and, and Thorin was fantastic. I mean, that was, that mm-hmm. was its own Absolutely. private moment. And I think everyone was able to just get this war out of their peripheral vision and focus on what was going on. And it was Thorin's eyes in friendship and in awe of how strong Bilbo was throughout this whole course. And he almost was, I almost, he looked like he was kind of envious in a way. It's like, how, how were you not touched by all of this and still come through the way that you are? And it's because of the nature of being a hobbit. This is just what hobbits do. Now, of course that Bilbo has his own scars and we know, we all know that it's one of them is hiding in his pocket, but but it was really nice seeing that at the end that Thorne kind of like gave it all up, and he said, "You know what? Thank you for being part of this journey. I am sorry that I wasn't as kingly as you may have liked for have me to have been, but in the end, I think I did okay, and and we got through it. So, but I won't be able to see my people move on because this is the last of, you know, this is the last of Durin's folk. So I thought that was nice, but I think that there should have been a little bit more of the journey back." That, I mean well I would have liked to have seen more and I think we will in the extended edition so it's hard for me to to get into it as much as I would have liked to
0: Allison Megan what did y'all think of um, the death of Thorin and, and the makeup between him and Bilbo well
3: for me that's what the, the I mean that's what I would have liked to have I would have liked to have seen less Thorin and Azog fighting and I would have liked to have had that that's the moment that I would have, have liked more of um, and I and I, I agree with, I think, everything that's been said so far. It's such a great moment between the two of them, and both of the actors do such a wonderful job emoting um, to each other and reacting to each other that, you know, those those were the moments that I really connected with in the story, and, you know, the, the larger spectacle and the battle scenes and all of that kind of stuff really wasn't as wonderful for me as those those more um, individual acting scenes and moments between two people
2: yeah I agree I just thought it was a beautiful scene it was really well acted and you know it's a little bit different than the book but it didn't bother me at all I thought it was perfect the way it was filmed and executed it was a great scene I think it's
0: a testament to Martin Freeman as an actor who you know the movie series is called The Hobbit and yet a lot of the films have a lot more of other characters than just him. And so he has to be on every time that he has a scene. And I, I really feel like, um, you know, even in this movie, there, there's a lot of places where Bilbo isn't around as much. And so as he plays the scene with Thorin, every scene that he has with Thorin in this film, so well done between those two and and i'm with you alice my favorite moments in the movie really are those scenes between those two actors because they're just playing it so well and it, i feel like every time that they're acting on screen together they've pushed aside the the big budget filmness of it and they're just playing like a small indie movie because of the way that they are just i think they're just kind of giving it a master acting class and in the way that martin freeman just plays his death as well like and and the way that he's kind of sobbing at the end too, it doesn't sound like a movie sob. It just sounds like what we sound like when we're actually crying our hearts out. You know, it's just a really emotional, well done scene. And I felt for the that character who, especially by the very end of the film when he calls Thor and his friend, you feel the I think the full weight of the emotion of what Bilbo's lost and some of those scars which are he lost some of the dwarves he was closest to and especially Thorin who I think he considers to be somebody who uh, was brave and true and he misses immensely and so um, well I just want to get into a couple more things because we're going really long but hey this is the last Hobbit and it's probably the last Middle Earth film we'll ever get so I think it's okay There are a couple other uh, themes that I kind of picked up here in the movie and one of them was like this I I called it the problem of immortality but I I don't know if it's just a problem or if it's just Thranduil um, who has lost really kind of that ability to love and care for things that aren't immortal Um, he's kind of like Thorin placed his hope on getting these jewels back which are immortal you know we find out he's lost his wife Legolas mother in a battle and ever since then he's kind of shut himself off from that emotion of love and so sometimes maybe living forever without dying isn't really the best you know maybe being mortal isn't so bad especially if you live thousands of years without love or you learn to close yourself off I don't know what did you guys did you guys pick up on that at all or does that resonate at all with you guys
2: Yeah, I mean, I definitely picked up on that. I think it was definitely there in Thranduil's character. I thought Lee Pace did an excellent job of... I think that's kind of the aloofness that he brought to that role and kind of that arrogance that he brought to the role as well um, that kind of played into that. It was nice to see the moment with um, him and Legolas at the end when he finally, for the first time in who knows how long speaks about the loss of the person that he loved with his son um i thought it was nicely done it was definitely um it was definitely there and it's kind of one of those things that leads to legolas tying into the rest of the lord of the rings movies because he says i can't go back after he's lost after everything that's happened between him and tariel and so it sends him out on his larger quest
1: I don't know if you guys are, I mean, I thought we were like stepping into Highlander lore territory because that's, (laughs) because Matthew, when you were talking about that, that's really at the root of, of that universe. Um, There's a great Queen song from the first movie called Who Wants to Live Forever. And the hook of that song is Who Wants to Live Forever When Love Must Die. And it's an interesting thing with the elves because the elves are, um, the elves, they have this long lifespan. They're not truly immortal because they will die from war. Um, but if they keep to their own the way that Thranduil did, if they stayed behind their walls, then everything would be fine. No one would die. No one would be risked. Uh, no, he wouldn't lose anybody else. So maybe that was at the root of, of why he was who he was. He didn't want to risk any more lives from the one that, lost, that he lost that cost him so much pain because I don't think he would want anyone else, especially his own son, to suffer through that. Now, this is all conjecture, of course, because I don't really know elves. Well, not personally, at least. But <laughs> there is that w- at what cost? You know, if you choose to like live, say, from now, for a thousand years from now, what would you gain and what would you lose? You would gain the knowing the future. You would gain seeing civilization either rise or fall. But in the end, it's the people that you love that help forge you and help craft who you are. If you lose those people, what do you have left? And in losing his mom, or losing his wife, Legolas's mom, what does he have left aside from just being immortal?
3: I, I feel like that what you just brought up is is... I don't want to use the word, but borderline trophy because, I mean, if you, if you, that's how immortality is often addressed in, um, storytelling, I mean, if you look at the current program that's on television right now forever, um, you know, that, that play between what you just said, I think is a very, 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 very common way to look at immortality, which you correctly point out, elves aren't actually immortal, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, they just have very long lives, um. I, I missed, I, I will say, to do the book comparison, I, you know, Fendril Thend- gets a bit of a, he, he gets a re- redeeming moment in the book uh, as Bilbo is leaving, um, and that's the redemption that, that I, I missed, this redemption with him remembering his, his um, dead wife didn't, for me, didn't feel as, as good as the moment that he has with Bilbo in the, in the book. Um, and again, for me, those moments where they're sort of hitting me over the head with the hookup to the other films, I, I personally could have lived without or would have hoped that they would have done with more of that wonderful set of subtlety that Peter Jackson can do. And it, it felt very clunky to me that that moment with him and Legolas. I got to say
1: there if there was one for at least for me, one really shoehorned line. In the movie, it was during that scene where I think it could have played off a little bit more sincerely, because as soon as he said that about his mom, or it was right before it, Thranduil turns to him and says, "By the way, if you're hanging up north, check out the right. D- <laughs> you know, check out a group of the Dúnedain, and if he's hanging out there, find a guy named Strider, because he might be kind of important later on.
2: <laughs> I'm yeah, just right. saying." Yeah, that was a little much for me
1: too. Oh, it's like, again, I'm not sure if that's going to be expanded at all with more exposition. I don't know how you can, but it just felt like, okay, we're going to say our goodbyes now, and here's how Legolas is going to reinsert himself into fellowship when he speaks up for the first time. This is Aragorn, son of Arathorn, you owe him your allegiance. It's literally like right from that line of dialogue that Thranduil delivers. So. (laughs) Yep. <laughs> that was a little heavy-handed for me.
0: The, this whole idea for me of the the immortality and and forgetting what matters truly in life, and it goes along with the whole greed issue, um, is that you know when we focus on the wrong things um, and forget to live, um, that life is is meant to be. Um, full of of life with love and all of those things thranduil doesn't really have a life he just kind of has a half-life because he's closed himself off from all the things that make life truly worth living which is being in relationship with people um, because he's afraid of losing and that's another form of greed which we know from star wars Anakin so um, you know I I think that it's um, it was just a subtle hint you know uh, in the film and and um, people may watch it and they've not even picked it up but I I thought it was a good one because it's a reminder of why they were fighting these battles because there was an evil worth fighting um, and that there was there were things worth protecting um, you know and that's why you give the bard kids so you can kind of have that visual representation of the things that we're trying to protect so um, and the last theme that I really just loved was the true friendship and loyalty and Thorin feels betrayed by Bilbo <laughs> when he gives away the Arkenstone and yet Bilbo's doing what's really best for his friend and personally I've had friends say and Uh, be in my face about my own faults Um, and and I needed it and that's what true friendship is and that's what true loyalty means and I I loved seeing that really play out um, I thought very well in the film uh, of what that really means and the fact that you know even the most unlikely of people can change the course of your future you know and um, it's those people that are really true to you and really love you that that may uh, have to get in your face every once in a while and do things you don't like because you're on the wrong path there, bucko.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think uh, my two, two of my favorite moments from the movie are the scenes between Thorin and Bilbo um, when you can see these two men looking at each other with just friendship and admiration for one another, um, especially from Thorin when he's going through his... His dragon sickness that one moment when he lights up because he's just enjoying his friend um, it's a great theme and to me it's one of the bigger themes that uh, Tolkien likes to explore and it's one of the big important ones that I really like
3: yeah for me that's the which I feel like a broken record that's the, that's that's the story that I wanted I don't need Tauriel <laughs> I don't need that love I, that for me that story is about the, the love of friendship and the and the love of kinship and standing up for your friends and not the romantic love. So I totally agree with you on that point.
1: Yeah, and I think that plays out nicely in Thorin's you know, final scene with Bilbo, his death scene, because I think that there's a forgiveness that he's trying to ask for and that only a true friend can give. Yeah, because definitely. He's, because he sees something that he has seen Thorin at his best and he's seen Thorin at his worst and he's accepted him both times and in between. But I don't think that Thorne has forgiven himself until he can clear the air with Bilbo and say that you are my true friend and thank you for seeing me through all of this, through my best and through my worst and not judging me. And Richard Armitage really does play that well because that scene reminded me so heavily of when Boromir was asking for Aragorn's forgiveness, you know, forgive Mm. me, I did not see because that was one of Boromir's truest moments. Where oh I cry uh, every yeah. single time.
2: Me too. Every <laughs> single time I yeah. cry.
1: It's, it's because there's. I think that there's so much true meaning behind what those words. And at the very end, when I have nothing left to lose, I still have something to gain. You know, I I have that connection that will echo through the eternity of friendship. And I think that's really at the spirit of a lot of this is. The Fellowship, I think, worked better with the bonding of all those characters, but I still think at the heart of all of these stories, it's still how friendships are forged and how friendships are maintained and how friendships withstand the test of time and withstand the test of trial.
0: There and back again. Uh, Final thoughts on just the Hobbit trilogy and, and the last time, will be in Middle Earth on on screen for for quite a while. Um, Alice? I do very much enjoy Peter Jackson
3: as a filmmaker, and I think, uh, as you've mentioned um, many times, I'm very thankful that he's the one who ended up telling um, the the story that is the version of the films of The Hobbit. Um, I think if I were to order them for myself, I would probably put... Desolation of Smaug first, Unexpected Journey first, and, and this film actually for, for me last, although uh, Unexpected Journey in this one might be very evenly tied. Um, but overall, I would say that I do think the films are absolutely enjoyable and absolutely worthwhile, um, but I do hope that everyone goes back and um, tries to uh, internalize and enjoy the stories for themselves and, and actually read the books and his original words.
2: I was really glad to see Middle Earth again. Um, I'm going to miss it. Good thing there are books that I can read anytime I want and movies that I can turn on anytime I want. Um, Definitely looking forward to watching extended editions of these films as well. Um, And uh, I don't know. I think I like this one. I think this one might be my favorite of the three. Um, I think I'd probably give it an 8 out of 10 if I were to give it a rating. Um, but yeah, I was glad to see uh, Peter Jackson's Middle Earth one last time.
1: You know, when I first heard that Guillermo del Toro was going to do the two Hobbit films, I was like, wow, this is going to be interesting because I'm, I'm a fan of his work and his and his visual style. But I am glad that it returned to Peter Jackson's hands because I think that the world is, is representative of his way of looking at Middle Earth and I don't think that it would have paired well with the entirety of the uh, the, the Lord of the Rings trilogy uh, that came what, 12 years prior so it's, it's neat to see how he's improved upon it in some ways and how Fellowship or the Lord of the Rings still holds its own after all these years because there you get so many different things out of it and it's hard for me to to really choose one over the other although I do favor fellowship is my favorite of all the films but gosh I can't even I can't even describe how many memories how many dollars I've spent towards this entire world how many conversations I've had including this one that I've spent talking about this universe all I can really say is, is that I'm glad that they came I don't think in my lifetime I'm going to see something as grand as this again. Maybe I'll never never say never, but this was a singular vision. This was something that was truly a labor of love and a labor of a country. Um, because, as much as this is Middle Earth, New Zealand really put its best foot forward in so many different ways. And I don't think that I don't think that it could have come to fruition if it weren't for the people in the country of New Zealand as well, because. I've had the opportunity to be there and these people are so behind this work. It just shows at every corner and it was just fantastic. It's it's going to be hard to, to process this right now when the films are all done and, and it's going to be neat to see the extended edition to see basically all of it one last time in all of its glory and all of its extended edition splendor. You
0: know... I, I just think that it's fantastic what Jackson was able to create and um, knowing all of the time that they put into all of these films uh, from 2001 with um, the, the Fellowship of the Ring all the way to the Battle of the Five Armies now here in 2014, it, it's been a long time. And yet, you know, with the Hobbit stories, he has less time to produce the world and in some ways, the Hobbit story is a little bit bigger. Um, it's more fantastical. The places they visit are more fantastical and and more elaborate. And um, because in in the other films, you, we definitely revolve more around the world of men, and it's a little bit easier. Even as big as it is, something like Minas Tirith is huge, but it's very concrete in the sense that we kind of know what castles feel like. And so it it's like the biggest badass castle you've ever seen but at the same time it it's just not quite as as um, crazy as trying to what is an underground layer of elves supposed to look like and how do you create that what does a mountain an entire mountain that's a home for dwarves actually look like inside all these things So I I think he had um, a huge challenge and I think he does a wonderful job of making this world a little bit brighter, a little bit more fantastical since this is 60 years before the Lord of Rings and and they feel a little bit more fairytale-ish and I think it's the right call. I like that they flow into the Lord of the Rings by adding um, the extended material from Tolkien around that and all in all I... I'm just kind of sad to see them end. I'm I'm sad that this was the last time. And if there was anything that was a real downfall for the film for me, it's I just wanted more. Um, and that's just because I'm a, a huge fan of, of what they do. And so if I was going to rate this, it'd probably be, um, I, I'd put this as a 8.5, I think. I really enjoy this film. I, I think it's really uh, well done. Uh, it's enjoyable and, and like Norm, I'm excited to see the extended version as well next year when it comes out uh, and, and and be able to uh, appreciate the final appendices as well because for me one of the best things about this has been Jackson knows how to do extras on a DVD. I mean, it's incredible and I really appreciate that they care enough about us as fans to, to let us go behind the scenes and really understand what it meant to bring middle earth to the screen it has been a blast talking to all of you guys about the battle of the five armies but it's obviously not the only thing we've been talking about here on trek fm the past week so here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network
1: previously on trek.fm standard orbit
0: and and so i was biased against it. it even when i
3: started
2: buying the the two disc collector's edition dvds i avoided buying any of the even numbered movies odd numbered movies
1: <laughs> earl gray like uh, like they stated in the end of the movie you know they thought he'd outlive all of them and i'm like yeah that's what should have happened we should have seen data like in the you know 26th century like data 5.0 whatever we call them to the journey <laughs> You don't know if she's going to stab him or smooch him?
0: She's going to smooch him, of course. After dessert.
1: <laughs> after dessert. We
0: all know what dessert means.
1: Warp 5. Along with technology and along with trying to study the origins of a lot of different things that we've come to know in, in the original series and beyond, it's hard to try and deconstruct it without insulting what has come in all of the things that we know of being Vulcan mind melt. Mission Log, a Ronberry Star Trek
2: podcast.
1: And my thought was in the next scene, Crusher should have the body of the dead Klingon sitting on the back of her toilet holding a candle, (laughs) you know, (laughs) which she would only get to do after Lieutenant Yara's gotten to hold the dead Klingon up to her ear to see if she can hear the ocean. Commentary, Trek stars. Everything you would imagine
0: would be in an opening title sequence for this show is in there. I think the shot that really does it for me, the shot that really pulls everything together is when he dunks the basketball.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Melodic tricks. So we do know an awful lot of people
3: get associated with Vic Fontaine. He name drops to the nth degree about all the famous people that he with. One of whom is Frank Sinatra.
1: Axinar, the official podcast. When there's a possibility for something to be misunderstood or um, not clearly explained. It can potentially open up a big hole for a show because people can end up going down a path that was actually not what somebody wanted to be done. The 602 Club.
0: What are those Bond movies that you go back to time and time again because they just do it better?
1: Uh, First of all, Matthew, nobody does it better. That's true. Uh, It makes uh, me feel sad for the rest. (laughs) 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 And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm
0: check out these shows and find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the star trek universe or middle earth and beyond you'll find us wherever you get your podcast if you're an apple user be sure to hit that subscribe button it helps us out greatly and it does really make it easier for the listeners to find the show in itunes when they search so do star ratings and itunes reviews as well so we really appreciate those and uh, if you give us one i'll definitely give you a shout out on the show and uh, give you a great big thanks if you're not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and, of course, you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. Alice, Megan, thank you so much. I can't believe you guys were like, yeah, we'll do all three. <laughs> I mean, uh, it w- and, of course, you're welcome back anytime, but tell everybody where they can find you online and about your own podcast.
2: So um, we do, we are part of a media group called Educating Geeks, where we like to bring people into our favorite fandoms. Um, So like Matthew mentioned, we actually just recently covered the Hobbit novel. Um, And later this week, we'll be posting a drinking game that we came up with for the Hobbit. We like to do that for every topic that we cover. Um, And for the Star Trek fans, we have a project called All the Trek, where one of our Team members is watching every single episode of Star Trek. Uh, just finished the original series this week. So if you'd like to see what she thought about the last couple of episodes, make sure to check us out. You can find us on educatinggeeks.com and we're on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Google And I think we just started an in Instagram. We did. Um, we are educating geeks on everything. So it's easy to find us.
0: If listeners haven't heard y'all's show, please go listen because it is a lot of fun. I really enjoyed the Hobbit podcast and I think I'm just going to start going through your back catalog and picking out all the fun subjects that you've got because it really is a lot of fun. So you guys need to check it out. Thank
2: you so much for saying that.
0: Yeah. I, I mean, I appreciate good podcasts. So, you know, there's nothing better than good sound quality and people who know what they're talking about. So,
2: <laughs> Well, that's what we strive for. So yeah. mission accomplished.
0: We love you guys too. Aw, thanks guys um, well Norm it's it's been great to have my associate producer back here in the 602 I, I mean Ruby has been keeping your seat warm for the past few weeks that you've been gone
1: uh, tell everybody where they can find you well you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Norman Lau that's N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O and I'm a huge supporter of Alec Peters and the Axanar project and you can find me on the Axanar fan group on Facebook and I'm a proud supporter of Trek FM through Patreon and I am now the uh, host for Warp 5 and the associate producer for Warp 5, The Orb, The 602 Club, and Axenar, the official Axnar podcast. And Ruby, Ruby's a sweetheart. She found me a bottle of Frog Morton, or at least replicated one. So how about that?
0: <laughs> awesome.
1: Well, thank you so much, guys. Thank right, you. Thanks. And uh, thanks, Megan and Alice. You guys were champs on all of these podcasts. You guys are awesome, and I'm definitely gonna start listening to your to your podcast for sure. Oh,
2: thanks, Nora. That's somewhere. very nice. Thank mm-hmm. you. I love whenever you come up on the Trek FM stuff I listen to, so it was great to get to talk with you today. It's like we have our own fellowship. <laughs> I know. That's right. <laughs> we're gonna have to get tattooed. And The fellowship at the ring,
0: <laughs> though internally bound, was disbanded for you. <laughs> Another way you can help us keep all of our shows coming to you each week is to become a patron of the network on Patreon. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, that's patreo ncom slash trekfm, you will find all our current goals and milestone contribution levels, along with the great perks that we have for you. These perks include access to content, exclusive content, Producer credit, seats on our content development team, and more. And so like Norm, you can be one of our associate producers here on the 602 or any of the other shows that you really like here on the network. And we really appreciate any support that you can give us. Again, you'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. You can contact us at trek.fm contact. Leave us a voicemail on the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm. We're on Twitter at trekfm. Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And we have our listeners only discussion group there on Facebook. You can find that at the Babel conference. That's B-A-B-E-L. Search that in the Facebook search field or just go to the website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. Before we go, we'd like to ask everyone to please support our sponsor who helps bring the 602 Club and all of our shows to each week. And our sponsor for the show is audible.com. Audible is a great way for you to just read all those books and, and you know, especially we don't have a lot of time these days. So Audible is a great way to do that, whether you're uh, running around town, running outside for exercise or just working around the house. It's a perfect way to get to read those books. As a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice with 30 day trial just to see how great Audible is. Just go to audibletrial.com trekfm and sign up today. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash and we thank Audible for their support of the 602 Club and the network. And don't forget to check out Enterprise in Space, a project of the nonprofit National Space Society that will design and launch an 8-foot orbiter and return the craft to Earth. The NSS Enterprise orbiter will carry more than 100 student design science experiments into space, and you can make that happen. Just visit enterpriseinspace.org and find out how to get your seat on the mission. And of course, you guys, you can find me on Twitter at Matt 2 You can find me on Literary Checks with Dan, where we talk about the books and comics of Star Trek. The Orb with Christopher Jones, where we talk about Deep Space Nine. And then there's also my own personal blog at 42LifeInBetween.WordPress.com. Well, thank you so much for joining us, and y'all come back now, you hear. Mr. Hammond, I think we're back in business!